we going to get this thing started? Are we going to do this? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do it. You know why we're going to do it? Because this, 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 this won't hurt a bit. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time for a second opinion. My name's Dr. Mel Herbert. And I'm Dr. Jess Mason, and we're here with my very inquisitive husband, Dave Mason. Greetings once again. You know, uh, last episode we talked about cigarettes and tobacco, of course, marijuana and vaping. I have a question. You guys didn't mention anything about hookahs. Uh, Where do hookahs fall on the spectrum of badness? Because it is a water pipe, right? That makes it better. December 12, 2014, Taft Tribune, Woodland Hills, California, headline, Puff Puff Don't Pass, Hookahs Smoke Out Taft, by Parsa Yousefi. That's Dr. Rob Orman, host of our internationally famous EM rap series for ER Docs. The excerpt is actually taken from a local high school newspaper. Hookahs are becoming more popular with young adults across America. Due to its large Middle Eastern influence, Taft has many students who regularly smoke hookah, as well as other students who are likely to try hookah at least once in high school. In a recent survey, 19% of students admitting to having smoked hookah before. Most have smoked hookah again after trying once. And what is hookah? Hookah, or shisha, is just a water pipe. That's it. You're still smoking tobacco, you're just going through a different medium. But the tobacco for hookah comes in lots of different flavors like mint and cherry and chocolate and it all sounds so yummy. It sounds like dessert. But in the end, it's just smoking tobacco. Now according to the CDC, amongst high school students, and this is frightening, one in five boys and one in six girls have tried hookah. And many of them have tried it because they believe that it is less harmful than cigarette smoking. Like I used to believe. But no, oh no, it is not. This is Sean Patrick Nord. I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Southern California, and I'm also a medical toxicologist. When you're burning this tobacco, it doesn't really filter out much of the stuff. One thing we didn't really talk much about is carbon monoxide poisoning. Carbon monoxide is that colorless, odorless gas that can kill you because it binds to the part of the red cells which carry oxygen and it stops the red cell being able to carry oxygen. So you can actually die if you have too much carbon monoxide. Many people probably have heard of carbon monoxide thinking most commonly if someone had a a hose hooked up to their car, putting it in the inside that you died of carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide worldwide is the number one killer of people by poisoning. And this can happen accidentally, as it would with a hookah. Sean explains hookah in a little bit more detail. Yeah, it's got the pipes, but it's got more than that. It's got different components to it. It's got this bowl that usually something like charcoal is put in, so you need a burning fuel source. Then they put tobacco on top of that. It goes down into a cylinder that has water at the bottom, and pretty much everybody's familiar with a bong. It's very much the similar setup as a bong. And why is that water in there? It's to cool the the smoke, really. Now, some people think it acts as a filter, but it really doesn't filter. It doesn't filter out most of the bad stuff. So it doesn't filter out the nicotine, and it doesn't filter out the carbon monoxide and other smoke. As you see, smoke comes out the other end. Some of the heavier material might get taken out. But really, you can't think of it as a filter. So let's get down to it. From a toxicology point of view, why is hookah smoking so bad? Even a normal hookah session is equivalent to about 20 to probably 50 cigarettes or even more, depending on how long you do it. So you're getting a massive amount of smoke equivalents to a cigarette if you were. But the other thing is, how does carbon monoxide get created? It's from the incomplete combustion of something that has carbon in it. And you don't need to know a lot about chemistry because everything has carbon in it. So if you burn wood, charcoal, or anything like that, you're going to get carbon monoxide that's created. And that carbon monoxide is in the smoke. 
just like in cigarette smoke or cigar smoke. Now, we all have a little bit of carbon monoxide in our body because it's just created by the chemical processes that go on. However, if you smoke two or three packs a day, your carboxyhemoglobin, which is a thing we measure, level could be as high as 5% or a little bit higher. Non-smokers are walking around with a carboxyhemoglobin of around 1% or 2%. With hookah, we can see people's levels get up to 20 or 30%, and a lot of times they'll pass out. And this carbon monoxide doesn't just come from the smoke from the burning of the tobacco. But remember, you're burning a fuel source. Just think of it like having a little barbecue, if you will. And if you're in a poorly ventilated space, carbon monoxide can come from the top, not even from what you're inhaling. So they get headaches. They feel like they got the flu. They just generally feel crappy. And if you get enough carbon monoxide, you can die. So hookah, not so great. I mean, so if these things are so bad for you, why are we even doing them? I mean, why why are they so addicting? Is that is that even something you can answer? So you want to know why that even though people know that cigarettes are horrible for them and that alcohol in excess yeah. is really bad for them and that doing anything in excess is bad for you, why do we do that? Yeah. It's all about the dopamine, baby. Oh, dopamine. They should just start selling dopamine. Exactly. Is that like in pill form? <laughs> yeah. Is that a liquid? Exactly. How do you measure that in tablespoons or... Yeah, so I've I got a friend here, his name's Ken Starr. He's an addiction specialist from San Luis Obispo. He's going to tell you why. Nicotine is stimulating on the brain. It causes dopamine release, then changes the neurochemistry. So the end result, that dopamine pleasure, like you get from heroin, is there. You know, I think that the withdrawal from tobacco is certainly not as intense as the withdrawal from heroin. But it also depends on, you know, how long you've been exposed, the hereditary factors, and the number of times you need to quit high up there, too, with the average probably being five to seven before tobacco users could quit. So in the last episode, you guys talked about nicotine being more addictive than heroin. Is that true? Nicotine is probably more addictive. I mean, the number of users who probably try cigarettes and get addicted is higher than the number that try opiates and get addicted. And the quit, the percentage of quit rate with tobacco, you know, is, is less than 10 percent. And that's probably similar to opiates. Do you think that nicotine is considered more addictive because the damage is done so much slower than with heroin or crack? Because each cigarette, you know, you may not see that effect for some 20 years. So what you're saying is, and I think uh, you're right, there might be a whole lot of other factors that's outside of the physiology of what's going on that are sociologic, that you want to stop using heroin because every time you use it, you fall down and you almost die. Yeah, or you lose teeth or you're (laughs) pouring yourself out. Or cops come to your house. And there's lots of external motivators for you to stop. Whereas if you drag a cigarette, um, there's not as many problems with it. And I can get it. It's, you know, it's expensive, but it's it's legal. I can just go buy it. Whereas to get my heroin, I've got to go down a back alley and there's a bad guy there. And I really don't want to do this because he's probably going to shoot me one day. And so there's all these other external factors that make want, want you to stop. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a good question. The only way to really find out, though, is to have a TV show. We're going to call it Big Brother <laughs> Crack. <laughs> and we're going to randomize people that are about the same age and sex and sociological groups. And we're going to put half of them, we're going to make them addicted to nicotine. And half of them, we're going to make them addicted to heroin. And then we're going to get rid of all those drugs out of the house. And uh, then we're going to see which one was the hardest to, to kick the habit from. It Something like, like that. Sounds like know, a good show. But Aaron Sorkin's, Aaron Sorkin's going to help me. We're going to write it. It's going to be big. All right? Let's do it. Let's sounds, pitch I'll it. I'll watch it. I'll watch it. <laughs> I don't know about the ethics, but it sounds damn good. I think that show already exists called Cops. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do?
Okay, so I have a question. What street drugs are the most addictive? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think that there's a big hereditary influence there. You know, we know 50 to 60% of the risk of becoming dependent and addicted is hereditary. So I think that's going to change for different people. Um, you know, I think the stimulants are real high up there. I think Adderall is really high up there. You know, opiates are, you know, in terms of just single use, wow, I'm hooked. I don't think it's up there. It's not like uh, crack cocaine, not like meth. Where does it work? Why is it so powerful? Why are people prepared to completely destroy their lives in order to get the next hit? The amount of stimulation on the reward system of the brain is so intense that non-drug users couldn't even relate to it. When you measure dopamine release, for example, on methamphetamines, it's thousands of times higher than that achieved by an orgasm. So, you know, there's probably people who want to have orgasms all day too, but when you're looking at your reward system being so dopamine dependent that these people will just use and use and use uh, over eating, over sleeping, over drinking water, and it just hijacks the whole reward system of the brain. It's so intense and powerful. And it's just unnatural levels of dopamine that you, you can't regulate. Is it true that the more you use, you get a down regulation or you need more of the drug to get the same high? So the longer you're exposed to, say, an opiate, you become desensitized to it. The receptors get less sensitized and you become tolerant. And what it really is, is it's your brain just trying to maintain an equilibrium. You know, whether it's a benzodiazepine a sedative that's increasing inhibitory signals, your brain's creating excitatory signals to try to balance it. Well, then you take that away and you have a withdrawal state. But in opiates, you, you specifically in alcohol, you develop a tolerance. The amount you need goes up and up and up for the same effect. This is the question I'm always like bugging Jess about. I'm really confused how receptors work. Um, there's always this talk of like, Okay, so I've done this drug, and now I, now if I stop doing the drug, I start getting withdrawals, and that's because my receptors are going off and alarming. And I guess the way I, I sort of see receptors is these little plants from Little Shop of Horrors, and the more drugs you do, the more little little plants that are made, and they're all chomping and saying, "Feed me, feed me, feed me." And if you can't feed enough of them, then you start getting basically withdrawals. Is that sort of how receptors work? Well, the physiology is actually pretty complicated because there's all these feedback loops and stuff, but we talk about down regulation. So on the outside of your cells and even on the inside of your cells, you can have these receptors. Think of these receptors as little doors that allow the drugs to affect your neurons or to affect your cells. So if you do lots of a drug then um, and you release, say, lots of dopamine and it makes you feel good, then your brain wants to regulate. And the one way it regulates is to just close some of those doors. It down-regulates. It says, I've got to close some of these doors. There's too much of this dopamine around, so we down-regulate. Mm. So that you have less receptors if there's lots of that drug around all the time. So this is why I do my first shot of heroin. I'm like, oh my God, I feel so good. All this dopamine gets released and you're like, it's the greatest thing in the world. And your brain goes, okay, yeah, that was a nice experience for you, but that's really abnormal. I'm going to reduce the number of receptors. Um, so next time, if you want the same amount of high, you have to do even more heroin to make all that stuff go through those doors and to give you that stimulation. Oh. So over time, the more you use a drug, you often have to use more and more and more and get all the side effects of that drug to get the same high, as it were. Chase the dragon. Yeah, there you go. Chasing the dragons. The dragon eventually, oh, it will eat you. <laughs> Be Missy Mouse. 
feed me all night long. <laughs> so are there any more vices left that you guys haven't completely destroyed for for the public? I mean, what about marijuana and it, all, all its talk about medical purposes? You guys mentioned the last episode, but I think you sort of glazed over that point. Can you can you expand on that a little bit? Well, first of all, I want to say something about vices. Yes, marijuana is a vice and alcohol is a vice. All of this is about um, moderation. So whether there's lots of drugs and there's lots of things we do, which are completely fine and inappropriate and even healthy if you do them in the right amount. What we're talking about here is being in uh, excess. There are certainly some drugs like we've talked about, like crack cocaine. There's really no way to do meth or crack cocaine in a healthy, appropriate way. Um, <laughs> no? No, I really don't think so. But medical marijuana is an example of here's a drug that used to be considered very bad, but it's really a pretty safe drug. I think it's a really appropriate drug for people under certain circumstances, but because it's not regulated, we don't know exactly how much you're getting. Yeah. The dosing's a problem, and I think a lot of doctors are really hesitant because while some states may allow it, on the national, like federal level, it's still illegal. And so that just potentially puts your license in jeopardy. Have you ever prescribed it, Jess? No. We can't even give like antibiotics to STD partners like in Ohio. Like we can't that we're like one of the few states where you can't even do that. So I doubt we're allowed to prescribe You can't even buy alcohol here until eleven o'clock. Really? On Sundays. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Interesting. Well, I've never, I've never prescribed. It is legal in California. Medical marijuana is legal and there are dispensaries everywhere. I've never prescribed it, but I have had a few uh, friends um, that I've suggested go do it because the medications that they've been using for some pretty serious diseases weren't working. I'm like, you might want to go try this and see if it helps. But um, Dave, you have some experience with this too, right? Yeah, I experimented a little with marijuana. Um, about 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And it progressively got worse over time. And my GI doctor was really at his wit's end when it came to medications. I was prescribed so many types of drugs that didn't seem to work for me at all. So basically, I decided to self-medicate with the pot. So just so you know, ulcerative colitis, that's actually an autoimmune disease similar to Crohn's disease. And it's your own body's immune system attacking the lining of the colon, causing ulcers. It can cause perforation through the colon wall. So it can be a really debilitating problem, especially for some people who don't seem to go into remission as often. And that was the case with you, Dave, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, it, it was seemed to be held at bay with, uh, what was that medication? Colazole? That's mm-hmm. what I was taking, right? Colazole? Yeah. And then about eight months on that it just it just went downhill really fast and it just got worse and worse and worse and i was on a lot of vicodin and i wasn't eating i think i went down to like junior high school weight um i lost like 30 pounds and could just because every time you thought of food or you ate a little food it the feeling was like trying to digest broken glass it hurt so much and i would just lay in bed all day and I just feel like I couldn't take enough Vicodin. And then one day, I just got the idea of why don't I try pot? And I tried it, and it was pretty much a lifesaver. I mean, it got me eating again. It would calm me down, my anxieties about having being so sick and being stuck at, in the house all the time and always having to worry about to find a bathroom if I ever left the house. Um, and it relaxed me. 
and it got my mind off of the pain I was in and kind of the things I was going through. And so I was, it was pretty nice. I mean, I didn't do it before and I haven't done it since, but at the time I, I was, it was really helpful for me. So Dave, your experience is why there's been a big push by people to have legalized marijuana because the story is recurrent. Traditional medicine had tried everything and failed and the doctors were looking at you, the patient, saying, I don't know what else to do. I've used everything. And then the patient themselves or an insightful physician have said, let's try marijuana for pain control, for anxiety, for nausea. And it works incredibly well. And now as there's increasing experience, it's become more and more legitimate to the point where I think in the future, instead of it being the last option, it'll increasingly become the first option, particularly if we do research and it's proven to be as effective as we seem to believe it is in a lot of patients. I think it would have made my life a little easier if my doctor would have prescribed medical marijuana for me. I mean, that way I would know exactly what I was getting instead of having to trust the person I was buying it from. When you are using medical marijuana, or in your case, Dave, it wasn't medical marijuana, like dispensed at a marijuana dispensary. It was street drugs. But you get so frustrated that you resort to doing something that's actually illegal because you feel like you've just run out of other options. And I think that's sad and frustrating that you feel like you have nowhere else to turn. And then you have this enormous like like fear and guilt that now you're doing something that could get you into a lot of legal trouble and you're just trying to make yourself not so sick anymore. Yeah, it was awful. It was really, it was the worst time in my life. It was so bad. Did you have any negative experiences that you can remember? Uh, it's, it's sort of hard to answer because in comparison to the drugs that I was taking that were prescribed to me at the time, those were causing so many bad side effects um, that marijuana just didn't seem to be all that bad in, in perspective. If I were to pick one, I guess, side effect that seems sort of negative is I was just very lethargic on marijuana. I didn't feel very motivated. I was tired all the time. Um, I didn't feel like I was on my A game. You were like, dude, I just, <laughs> dude. I was always watching uh, the History Channel. I would, rec- I would record on the History Channel, the Universe show. And I would just smoke out, sit on the couch, and just ponder the mysteries of the universe. And just <laughs> <laughs> watch those computer-generated images of flying past Jupiter, flying past Pluto, into the Kuiper belt, and be like, whoa, this is crazy. The universe is so big. The cosmos is also within us. We're made of star stuff. Look, this is really complicated and uh, we're talking about sort of the therapy for chronic diseases. You really need to work with your clinicians, your docs, your whoever you're working with and bring this up. Don't be afraid to bring this up as a possibility, particularly if you're at wit's end. The last thing we would want people to not try marijuana because they're so afraid that it's a dangerous drug. Yes, there's dangers with every drug, but let me put it this way. I asked our uh, addiction specialist, Ken Starr, this philosophical question. I just make you dictator of the planet. And you know that every society has to have a stimulant drug, and we've chosen caffeine, and a chill-me-out drug for weekends watching football. You, as the director of the planet, get to choose between alcohol and marijuana. Which one would you choose for your society from a public health point of view and why? (laughs) Wow. Um, I would choose marijuana. You know, not that uh, 
I think it's a benign, completely benign drug. But when you look at the morbidity and mortality in our society from alcohol use and abuse, it's crazy. The amount of car accidents and drunk driving. Marijuana isn't really associated with the public health risks, I think, as um, alcohol. I think it's been disproven now that marijuana is a gateway drug in and of itself. In terms of harder drugs, it is in the sense that people hang out with people who use marijuana, then they hang out with people who use other drugs, and they may eventually get into other drugs. But the amount of people who use marijuana and actually become addicted to it is, is fairly low. And I think as these as states find the revenue stream, like Washington and Colorado, I think the tide's not going to turn back. All I can say is that I see a lot of bad things happen in the ER because of alcohol. And um, I don't see a ton of, I, I can't say I say as many bad things happen in, from marijuana as I do from alcohol. Alcohol is, that's like a daily occurrence that bad things are happening to people and in people's lives because something stupid happens, some, some dangerous driving, bad decisions. And that just seems to be a common daily event with alcohol and not marijuana. And marijuana is a drug and it is a vice in air quotes. Alcohol is a drug, and it is a vice in air quotes. And um, just to keep it in perspective, alcohol is associated with many, many, many more deaths um, and much more injury than marijuana is. So that just puts it in perspective. But don't go just be a pothead just to be a pothead because it's so safe. No, it's still a drug. Just from keeping it in perspective, compared to what we accept in society now, it's way safer. So do you think the um, the reason why your alcohol is so much more dangerous than pot do you, because it's more prevalent it's just legalized so more people can get their hands on it or is there something else going on with alcohol versus marijuana no um just because of the nature of the drug it is a more dangerous drug because uh, marijuana tends to and again we've we're talking about sort of old school um natural marijuana not spice not one of these new modifications which can be incredibly dangerous um tends to just make you want to chill out and relax you and sedate you and make you want to eat cookies. Um, that's sort of the nature of that drug on effect on most people. Alcohol can have that same effect, but there's also significant subsets of people who get very agitated when they drink. This sort of angry drunk is a real syndrome. Some people just get really angry. And part of that is because it sort of disinhibits you. It um, works on your frontal lobe and other places. And so if you're under the surface, if you're really angry and pissed off at the world and you have a few drinks, it can really bring that out. And there's lots of theories about that. But in general, it's just sort of the way the drug works. And it also makes alcohol makes you believe that you can do anything and that you lose insight. I can drive at 100 miles an hour when I'm drinking because I'm fine. You're not fine. And there's many studies on that, that people believe, there's subsets of people that believe when they've been drinking that they're better drivers. Even though when you show them, and these have been done on TV and other places, you actually then, okay, here, have some drinks. We're going to put you on a closed circuit. Do you believe you can drive better now than you could before you had that six, six beers? And they'll say yes. And then they'll get them to do some maneuvers and do some braking and show that they are absolutely terrible and will kill people. But they don't have the insight because of the drug. And now it's time for some true confessions. I've had personally a really difficult time putting these last few segments together about uh, marijuana and alcohol. And I'll tell you why. I don't want anybody out there, particularly any kid out there, to use this as an excuse to say, I'm going to do marijuana because those doctors on that show said that it's safer than doing alcohol. 
That may be true. We don't know 100%, but even let's say it is true. That is not to say that doing drugs as a kid is a safe thing to do. It is not. It is dangerous and it is illegal. And it's dangerous because forget the religious underpinnings, the social underpinnings, your parents' beliefs. Forget all of that. If we just look at it from a medical point of view, which is what our show's about, there is good evidence that the younger you are when you drink or you do marijuana or any other drugs, the more likely you are to do serious damage to yourself, particularly if you're under the age of 21, because your brain is still growing. It's growing fast and it's learning. And if you put drugs and alcohol into that brain as it's growing, as it's learning, it can do serious damage. Potentially, you're going to be less smart than if you didn't do the drugs as you get older. And you're also much more likely to become addicted to those drugs the younger you are when you start them. So I want to make very clear to all of you out there, particularly you kids, young adults, we're not saying you should do these drugs because they're safe, because they are not safe in you in particular. And if you're anxious and you're stressed out and you're thinking, well, maybe I should do some weed to chill me out, you should go talk to somebody. Go talk to your family members. Go talk to your doc. Don't self-treat. Self-treatment, particularly when you're young, with any drug, can be really dangerous. It's okay. Talk to people. There's a whole bunch of us out there that want to help. So speaking of drinking, we're coming into the holidays, a time where there's lots of drinking. Um, And so we thought it'd be fun to do kind of a holiday theme show and basically uh dave open Mm -hmm. season you can ask us any questions you want about holiday mishaps and we will try to field them nice cool i'll put a list together and talk to my buddy sean who has a lot of good ideas i'll pose i'll throw some questions at you guys oh also i would really like to know what you guys think the diagnosis is for tiny tim tiny tim the character from the dickens novel Yes, and Christmas Carol. <laughs> Poor little Tiny Tim has some what, bad disease. I want to know what he had. Okay. Challenge. Challenge accepted. Tell me, Spirit, what's wrong with that kind lad? Much, I'm afraid. If these shadows remain unchanged, I see an empty chair where Tiny Tim once sat. Thanks to doctors Rob Orman, Ken Starr, Sean Nort, and Jess Mason. And of course, thanks also to our very inquisitive Dave Mason. My name's Mel Herbert. This Won't Hurt a Bit is a production of Fooly Boo Incorporated, produced by CeCe Herbert and Bill Connor. The information you hear on This Won't Hurt a Bit should not be taken as actual medical advice. If you have actual medical questions about actual medical things, you should see an actual medical practitioner. Even though we are actually doctors, we're not your actual doctor. So be sensible and keep it real. And this... Oh, this. 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 This.